0: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. I'm Cecilia Lay and this is Fit the Mission. Omicron has been making our lives pretty awful lately and it's expected to keep doing that for the next few weeks. Dozens of restaurants across the Bay Area have closed down due to the variant, which is estimated to be up to 5 times more infectious than Delta. Last week, teachers in Oakland and San Francisco held sick outs to protest what they say are unsafe working conditions during the surge. And as more and more people are infected or exposed to COVID, coronavirus tests are in short supply in the Bay Area. It's all adding up to continued uncertainty about how to stay safe and what we can expect in the months ahead. Last week, Chronicle Health reporter Aaron Alday and I hosted a Twitter Spaces conversation with Dr. Bob Wachter, who is the chair of UCSF's Department of Medicine. Walker has become a national COVID-19 expert since the start of the pandemic. He offered clarity on various topics, including best practices around isolation if you are infected, the risks of breakthrough infections, and whether the Omicron surge may be one of the last big ones before we move into an endemic stage. Today's episode is a recording of that live conversation, which was hosted by me and Chronicle Health reporter Aaron Alday. It's been edited for time and clarity. The last time we spoke with Dr. Bob Walker was right before the holidays. I started off this conversation asking him what he's learned about the Omicron variant since then and whether there has been anything surprising or reassuring about the Omicron variant in this surge.
1: Yeah, there are things that I've learned that are surprisingly positive and things that I've learned that are somewhat negative. The surprisingly positive part, maybe not surprising, but but it's become clear when we last spoke it was clear how much more infectious it was than the other vi- the prior viruses it was clear that it at least partly evaded the immune system what was not clear was severity and and we were hearing the anecdotal reports from south africa so that is now that's now locked down it's it is crystal clear that It is less severe than the prior variants. We've seen that from epidemiologic data in terms of the number of people with cases that end up in the hospital. We've also seen it from some scientific data that shows that it doesn't invade the lungs nearly as much as the prior variants. So that's all terrific news. You have to take the less severity thing and break it down a little bit. It's really less severe if you're fully vaccinated and somewhat less severe if you're unvaccinated. So it's it's definitely not an argument to be unvaccinated. Other things we've learned, uh, the South Africa curve is now very clear. It got it. It was a massive uptick in the course of two or three weeks, and then it plateaued, and then it came down almost as quickly. So, we're putting a lot of our eggs in that basket that that will that will mirror that in the United States, which is not not a done deal, but makes us somewhat hopeful. Um, we now, in terms of infectivity, we knew it was much more infectious. I have to say that I. I I think the the extent of that is jaw-dropping. Uh, I'm sure all of you, like me, are just hearing about friends and family, maybe even friends and family you didn't know you had, coming out of the woodwork who have it, just were exposed to it, I mean, five times more than anything I've seen in the prior two years. So. The degree to which this thing is, is it, it will infect you if you give it any kind of a chance, far more than the prior variants. And we're seeing that in, in the case counts, which are really through the roof everywhere. A couple other little surprises. Um, here's an unhappy one. Up until a week or two ago, I was really treating the rapid tests, assuming I could find one as being a pretty accurate way of telling if somebody's infectious. And and whether you're using it as your way of making a diagnosis in someone who has symptoms, or as a way of saying it's okay to go and visit uh, grandma, Um, it's clear now with Omicron, for reasons that aren't particularly well understood yet, that the first day and maybe even first two days of a time where you can be symptomatic and you're clearly uh, infectious, you can be negative on the rapid test. So using it in the ways that we did previously is a little dicier uh, than it was previously.
2: You know, uh, you you kind of raised this this uh, this rapid testing issue, which is, is, you know, heavy on everyone's mind. People are really thinking about it. But I know there's also been a lot of confusion um, and even concern over the CDC guidance, which is related to that, right, for isolation and quarantine. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the takeaway... For your, for people who test positive or are close contact of someone who tests positive, um, does and does does five days seem like an appropriate you know isolation or quarantine period for most people? Um, do you think think that California's take with the testing to get out does that seem like the right path? What what are your thoughts on this? Given that this is a very dynamic situation, it is.
1: It's it's changing quickly, and 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 the the old isolation guidelines where you just stay out of commission for ten days. And that's a safe number. Pretty much everybody except if you're immunosuppressed. By day 10, you, uh, you may still test PCR positive because it's so ultra-sensitive, but you're not capable of infecting anybody. The problem with a very long guideline, even though it's safe, is you're keeping a lot of people out of the workforce um, for longer than they need to because they actually were no longer infectious by day 10. On day five, <laughs> uh, it looks like about 80% of people are no longer infectious and and we don't exactly know that number with omicron it's assumed to not be longer because omicron comes on sooner uh you know old days we used to say you know you're not going to get sick till day five after your exposure that's completely wrong with omicron it happens in day two or three so so the assumption is that if you have a, a mild case you become asymptomatic fairly quickly that five days after uh, your initial symptoms you the vast majority of people will no longer be infectious but not 100% by any means now it probably would be reasonably safe if uh, if those people after 5 days with no testing everybody wore an N95 for the next 5 days and didn't go and didn't come in contact with anyone who was super vulnerable little kid with no vaccination uh, elderly person particularly an immunosuppressed person but that's not the real world. And so in the real world, you would want to let the people who truly are not infectious go out and do their thing. Uh, but the people who are still infectious, you'd want them to stay in isolation until they're not infectious. So that's the idea of going ahead and using the test, a rapid test on day five or day four and five or day five and six to determine whether in fact they're, they're, they're not infectious. I, I think the test will still work well for that purpose. If the test says you're negative and you feel fine, you're safe to go. You should still wear a mask because it's still slightly possible you have a tiny bit of infection, but you, but but you're, it's reasonable for you to go back to the workforce. If you test positive still on day five, if it were me, I don't want to sit next to you on the bus. I mean, I still am worried that you're infectious. And so it's reasonable to have that person stay at a commission for, for a couple of days. I think the California guidelines, which say Five days asymptomatic and a negative test on day five and then wearing a mask the next five days is the right call. And I I guess I'd add one one more thing, which is from our data at UCSF, you know, it's a reasonable guess that one out of 15 ish people wandering around the streets of San Francisco today uh, who feel fine have covid. And that's a scary thought. So if you walk into the Starbucks or or into the Safeway and you see you know, 20 or 30 people around you, there's a pretty good chance somebody has COVID. They don't know it. You don't know it. You're being exposed to them. That's why I always wear an N95. I'm, I'm going to do that. Um, you could argue that that's the greater risk, that person who doesn't know they have it then this person who's on day six after having just, you know, had an infection is being very careful, probably, we hope, is wearing a good mask. And so in some ways, this is not the greatest public health threat, people on day six, if they feel perfectly fine.
2: We hear a lot, I think, probably more than any other other readers from from families with young children, parents with young children, especially those who are under age five and can't, not not yet eligible for vaccination, who are just really concerned during the surge, understandably, and especially with with you know, families with older kids who are going back to school. And so they're getting that mixing. Yeah. What would you tell those families about kind of how they should be thinking about getting through this, this particular time?
1: Yeah. First of all, I have a lot of sympathy. I mean, it's, it's just a almost impossible position. You know, it's a, Parents' instinct is to protect their kids, and they want to do that. And yet, life has to go on. And I would say that the best you can do for your kids is surround them with people whose probability of infection is as low as possible. And uh, you know uh, that means being sure that the people that are coming in close contact with your kids are. Wearing masks and wearing good masks, I've I've upped my mask game. I just if I'm going to wear a mask, I wear an N95 or a KN95. Don't see any reason not to wear the best possible mask since the virus is the best possible virus, and it's a hell of a better at its job of infecting me than the last the old viruses. So, um, the you know you surround the kids with people to the extent that you can you can modify their environment. I think at that age you still can. I recall. When I became teenagers, that became impossible. But if you can if you can influence this, if the people around them are all vaccinated and boosted, if anybody has even as much as a sniffle, they fess up and they don't come close to the kids and everybody else is wearing good masks around them and you use ventilation, which I understand, you know, all easier said than done. Life is complicated, but that's the best you can do um, as we wait for vaccines to roll out for the kids. The vaccines are not going to be available for the kids in the time that we have this acute threat with Omicron. And and if this does plateau and come down over the next month, you know, in a month from now, there may just be not that much virus around in the community. You'll feel much more comfortable being a little bit less vigilant than you are now. But these are really hard questions. I think the schools remain the hardest question of all, because the schools, it is very clear what the downside of keeping kids out of schools is. On the other hand, I am a little worried that you can sort of get locked into this Doctrinaire position like we should never ever close the schools again. That was such a bad decision And there can be a situation where this thing is rampaging. It's a hurricane. It's about to hit your school And the school's not the safest place to be I don't think it's a situation where we should be saying we can never ever close the schools again Because last year was such a terrible mistake
0: Dr. Wachter, we asked folks on Twitter to submit questions and we saw a lot about long COVID Uh, Laurel Coleman on Twitter asked, uh, they would like to know more about the risk of long COVID in relation to vaccine status. What is known about vaccination as protection against long COVID? Similarly, Jill Nyman asked, please discuss risk of long COVID in vaccinated and boosted people with respect to Omicron. What do, what do we know? Nothing. Mm. (laughs) <laughs> I mean really nothing. I I I with respect to Omicron
1: nothing cuz long covid is you've had symptoms for more than you know more than a month or two and nobody's ever had Omicron for more than a month or two so the true answer is we know nothing. We know don't know as much about long covid as we should given uh, how prevalent it is and how important an issue it is it, it is in the entire world. You know, you can find studies that say that vaccination is somewhat protective and lowers the rate. I think if I've looked at the average of studies, uh, lowers it by about half, but doesn't bring it to zero. Um, you can find studies that say if you have a mild case, your prevalence, your chance of long COVID is lower. You can see others that say, no, it, it's, it still is reasonably high. I kind of go with a, a gestalt number of five-ish percent. So, and and I'm, I am sort of making that up. But if you ask me, like, why am I trying to be really careful not to get COVID, including now, and I don't buy the we're all going to get Omicron anyway, so might as well have a party line. I'm really trying hard not to get it. And so far, I've been successful. Why am I trying not to get it? One, I'm old enough that I could have a bad outcome, although it's very unlikely, having had three shots. Uh, two, I don't want to get an and infect my other people, um, and including my family, but also people I might run into. Uh, but three, probably the biggest reason is I really don't know what the probability of long COVID is. And if you tell me I, whether it's a one in 10 chance or one in 20 chance, it doesn't matter that much. That's a high enough chance of feeling crummy two months from now or maybe six months from now that if I, you know, if what I can do to prevent that is wear a slightly uncomfortable mask uh, when I'm going to indoor space, it just doesn't seem like a very, very high price to pay. So I think, you know, that's the numbers I tend to use, but we really need better studies of it.
0: More with UCSF's Dr. Bob Walker after a quick break. In the rest of this recorded Twitter Spaces conversation, he will explain what kind of immunity a breakthrough infection of Omicron offers. And also, some people have been wrongly saying that COVID-19 is just like the flu for two years. Is it possible that before long, COVID really will be like the flu? We'll be right back. You're listening to Fifth and Mission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. Let's get back to our edited Twitter Spaces conversation with Dr. Bob Wachter and Chronicle health reporter Aaron Alday. I posed a question to the doctor from a Chronicle audience member who asked whether an Omicron infection will protect them from getting COVID again, at least for a while.
1: Another question that we don't know enough about because not enough time has, has lapsed to, uh, to tell us that. And, and the best way we will learn that unfortunately, is epidemiologic. Omicron will, it very clearly is becoming the, the virus in the United States. It's taking over from Delta. That's actually very good news because it is somewhat milder. So the immunity from, uh, to Omicron does seem to, to help uh, uh, prevent Delta. So in terms of preventing a resurgence of Delta, which we want to prevent, that seems to work. Um, I'm, I'm assuming, based on the way we've all reacted to the prior viruses, and, the, and the, the degree to which the vaccines continue to work against Omicron, even if a little bit less well, is that your an Omicron infection will prevent a reinfection for some length of time and at a high, but probably not 100% uh, a degree of protection. And that becomes, uh, I said the other day on Twitter, that may turn out to be the most important question in the world, because what Omicron is going to do is for an unvaccinated person or a or a a person with low levels of vaccination, for example, if you just got one shot, um, you're still quite vulnerable. If you're quite vulnerable, Omicron is probably going to find you. You're going to have an infection, you'll probably survive it, and you're now going to have immunity. And the question of how good our world looks in February when we get through this surge, I think it's actually going to look pretty good, but then does it look good forever? the unvaccinated people, if their only protection is their Omicron infection, and they are 30 or 40% of the population, then the degree to which their infection-related immunity lasts, how strong it is and how long it lasts, turns out to be the central question as to whether we're in an endemic stage where there's a low-level virus around, but it's more of a nuisance, or we can toggle back into a pandemic stage. And there's no way to know that until time passes and we see what happens.
2: Yeah, I wanted, kind of along those lines, or very much along those lines, I wanted to go back to you. You'd wrote, written something on Twitter recently um, about how we could be looking at something more like a flu um, at the at the end, on the other side of the surge. Can you expand on that a little bit? What, what do you mean by that um, in terms of it, it being a little bit more like a flu? And there, there's some talk that this could be sort of like the last big surge, right? Like the last of these sort of really monster surges and that maybe we'll start getting into a little bit more of an even keel, maybe something that is a little bit more predictable.
1: Yeah, well, I'm massively uncomfortable with it because A, what we're going to experience now, we are experiencing now and over the next few weeks is going to be truly awful. So any talk about how we may end up in a happy place people say, are you kidding me? Like, have you have you been awake and looked outside? So there's that. So any prediction, first of all, has to acknowledge the fact that we've all been wrong a ton. Uh, and second, it is all dependent on what happens with variants. With, if, if that's not enough caveat, <laughs> I'll go to why I think we're going to likely be, likely than not, by far be in a good place in probably late February, March. Uh, sort of reflect what I just said before, that a lot of it is a reflection of how immune the population is. And at this point, you have in San Francisco, in the Bay Area, you have 80% of people with a pretty high level of immunity. if so They've had two shots and maybe half of them with a very high level of immunity with, this, with three shots. A lot of them, their level of immunity is going to go up if they get a breakthrough infection. It will serve almost like a booster. So that group will be more immune than they were and have some specific immunity to Omicron. But even if you don't, your your immunity works very well, particularly against getting really sick. But, you know, when this 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 sort of mantra pandemic of the un, of the unvaccinated sort of right. I mean, it basically says you have thirty or forty percent of the U.S., much less in the Bay Area, who is entirely vulnerable to uh, to getting COVID, and many of them have no immunity, or many of them think they have immunity because they had COVID in summer twenty twenty one, but that immunity has is very is almost trivial by this stage. Uh, sadly, but true, they are all going to get uh, Omicron or vast majority of them will get Omicron. They will get immunity the hard way. They would have been better off getting it through a vaccine, but they're going to get it this way. Some will get very sick. A few will die, but they will all be left if they don't die with a level of immunity much higher than they had. So when you look at the threat of Omicron killing you or putting you in the hospital, if you are fully vaccinated against it, it is not that different than the flu and here's another sort of thing i get a little a uh, little antsy about you know the 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 mantra of covid's not a, you know no worse than the flu has been used for a year and a half to downplay the severity of the illness and i think has been a big lie and and has gotten the way you know the flu kills 30,000 people a year this has killed 800,000 people in the united states so it's clearly not like the flu and i'll add one more thing there are now medications around that If you give them to a high-risk person, lowers the probability they'll need to go to the hospital by 90%. That's the Pfizer uh, oral uh, medication. Unfortunately, it's in terribly short supply, but that supply will begin to get better over the course of the next few months. So by late February, for at least selected people at very high risk of a bad outcome, let's say an older person who's unvaccinated, they will be able to take a pill which will lower their probability of a bad outcome. Uh, by a lot. So when you add all that up, and I apologize for the length of it, but that's those are all the factors, you end up in a situation that actually is pretty good. And the big question for me is not so much will that happen. I think it's highly likely to. The question is how long it lasts.
0: I want to spotlight uh, another vulnerable uh, population. And I'm glad we got this audience question personally, because I have my own grandmother is in a care facility, you know, right now elderly in facilities are being quarantined in their rooms again without socialization or exercise. What does the world data tell us about vulnerability of Omicron to vaccinated elderly? And that question comes from at SF Mora.
1: Yeah, they are, they are tremendously protected if they've gotten three shots but they're not hundred percent protected. There will clearly during the, you know, the, this, the surge is going to be so big. There's gonna be so much infection around there. Will there are already outbreaks in nursing homes. You will see lots and lots of cases so that even if the chances of dying, if you get an Omicron infection are 80% lower in a fully vaccinated older person, that's a lot of deaths you've prevented, but you still have a fair number of deaths. So I do think that pills, are a big deal. I don't know if they're, you know, game changer, maybe a little strong, but the pills work in a different way than your immune system. So if an elderly person who's at high risk of a bad outcome gets COVID and can get started within the first few days on the Pfizer pill, take, take the pills twice a day for five days, and that lowers their odds of dying by another 90%, then you have a much, much lower toll. And then we'll have tough questions if there's still virus around, do people really need to be isolated that way? Or is the cost of them being isolated greater than than the potential benefit? Those are going to be tricky calls. But uh, uh, for now, I think you have to be super careful because there's so much virus around. But I think in February, as the amount of virus goes down, I think this will become a little bit easier.
2: Dr. Bochter, um, we're we're getting close to our time, but I wanted to ask you one more question. Um, this one about equity, which has just been an issue, obviously, throughout this entire pandemic. Um, and now, you know, it's a global issue in terms of, of vaccine access. But more locally, you know, with this surge, we still have equity issues coming up, um, just in terms of like access to high quality masks, right? Like we keep hearing everybody needs to be wearing these N95s and KN95s, you know, if they're going out and about or double masking. And a lot of people don't have access to that. And these masks aren't necessarily, they're often disposable and, and they're, they're more expensive. And same with testing, right? Like access to testing is, is sort of a little bit of a kind of privileged situation right now. Um, what, I mean, do you see equity? What, what kind of equity issues do you see coming up in this stage? And, and what should we be doing about it locally, on the state level, on the federal level?
1: Yeah, I think there are there are clearly equity issues, but I guess they don't strike me as being any worse than the equity issues we face all the time. I mean, people with uh, who live in poorer communities don't get the treatment for their blood pressure or the treatment for their cancer or their other immunizations they should have. So, you know, this raises fundamental decisions and choices about what government does. You know, sh- the, the Biden administration, has done a lot of things right but put a lot of its eggs in the vaccine basket hoping that vaccines would get us out of this and clearly that has not worked and so we've got to take a step back and think harder about testing think harder about access to the medicines think harder about masks all those sort of things and and address inequities when they're real but I have to say when you look at the Bay Area we've done a very good job I think almost an unprecedentedly good job in getting vaccines into poor communities and communities of color um a lot of the equity issues that we thought would be dominant in the pandemic have been a little bit less so in part because I think the Bay Area has, has, has given these issues a ton of attention. And I think I saw in your paper last week that the hot spot for uh, Omicron is actually in the marina. So, you know, they're, they're, this is a pretty equal opportunity virus and there are equity issues, but I I think that there are just issues of raw shortage that we and, and, and things the government needs to do for everybody that it needs to step
0: up its game. That was a Twitter Spaces interview with Dr. Bob Walker, who is the chair of UCSF's Department of Medicine. You can find him on Twitter at Bob underscore Wachter. And to make sure you don't miss future Twitter Spaces events, you can follow The Chronicle at SF Chronicle and me at c That's at C-E-E-L-E-I. Erin Alday reports on COVID-19. You can find her health reporting at sfchronicle.com or on the Chronicle app. Her Twitter handle is her full name, Erin Alday. Thanks to King Kaufman for producing this episode, Sarah Feldberg and Jen Thomas for producing the Twitter Spaces event, and thanks to you for listening.